Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to a new episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the broader field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. In his in his majestic and magisterial new book, Law, Empire and the Sultan, Ottoman Imperial Authority and Late Hanafi Jurisprudence, Sami Ayyub examines and demonstrates the entanglement of Islamic law and imperial political authority in the early modern period. Focused on the incorporation of Ottoman Imperial Authority and edicts in the late Hanafi jurisprudential tradition, this brilliant book interrupts and questions widely held assumptions about the separation between the domains of imperial politics and the Islamic legal tradition in the pre-modern and early modern periods. The strength of this book lies in the way it provides a meticulous and dazzling intellectual history of the Hanafi legal tradition, showing its internal dynamism and nuanced forms of reasoning while constantly connecting that intellectual history to broader theoretical questions about the interaction of law, juridical authority, and empire. Combining philological rigor with razor-sharp conceptual dexterity, this book fundamentally reorients our understanding of the relationship between law and politics in Islamic thought and history. This lucidly written book, populated by a series of helpful tables and charts, will also be a delight to teach in advanced undergraduate and graduate seminars on a range of topics. Here now is my conversation with Professor Sami Ayyub. Uh, welcome, uh, Sami, to uh, the New Books Network, the New Books in Islamic Studies. Uh, really a uh, pleasure to have you uh, on our uh, podcast uh, and, you know, as I was saying uh, before I uh, pressed record here, uh, this is such an inspiring and brilliant uh, book, which uh, is uh, sure to spark conversations in uh, the study, not only of Islamic law, but empire studies, um, legal studies, um, and it really uh, reorients the field in some really dramatic ways. Uh, we have a tradition on the New Books Network, Sami, that our first question is always... Uh, uh, biographical. Uh, I was wondering if you could share a bit with our listeners. You do talk about this in the book as well, but if you could share with our listeners a bit about your journey, how you became a scholar of Islam, Islamic law, and then we'll uh, jump into the book. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Sherali, for the kind invitation. Um, I'm very grateful um, for your kind words about my book, and, uh, and I look forward to your engagement as well as your listeners. With regard to my journey for Islamic studies, uh, it was not really intention uh, at all. Uh, but I grew up in Egypt, uh, in the West Nile Delta, in a small town uh, called Shubrakhit. And my father um, uh, put me and my siblings in the other education system, became very popular, especially in the 1980s and 90s, uh, with all these institutes coming in the Delta and so many um, other places that used to be really very hard to get any type of uh, yeah, kind of education institutions uh, in these areas. Um, 
So um, I grew up in Al-Azhar education and I was lucky enough that by the time um, I had uh, been exposed to uh, the Islamic, le- uh, kind of Islamic legal training from really early age. So that was in elementary school. And in the first day we arrived to the school, they put us in a big field and they tell us, um, Hanafis come in that line, Shafi'is come here, uh, and Malikis come here. There was no Hanbalis at the time. Uh, and I had no idea what's going on really. Uh, but my uncle who used to teach uh, uh, at Al-Azhar, uh, Islamic law himself, uh, in the Hanafi tradition, he told me, stay in the Hanafi line. Uh, Abu Hanifa is the master jurist. And I continued uh, in the Hanafi classes for seven years uh, of training at Lazar. That was what, what, kind of one of the most important um, and one of the most uh, formative years, getting to understand that uh, jargon, uh, fascinating arguments between Abu Hanif and his disciples. Uh, I, I just found myself really uh, into this type of conversations, highly intellectual, philosophical, and uh, uh, extremely um, perceptive, specific, particular, and at the same time can generate all sorts of norms uh, around you. So, so I just felt that this is something in there that has serious value, uh, that I was really uh, kind of naturally inclined uh, to study well and enjoy throughout uh, my uh, elementary as well as secondary school. In college, uh, was less interesting. I think it was a much more kind of uh, a different orientation and different studies. Uh, but I came to focus on uh, uh, different types of Islamic studies, um, mostly in English and German. And most of these things was kind of study of Orientalist um, writings and so on and so forth. Um, so uh, um, I came to uh, the Hanafi school and the subject of my, of my book uh, because of this early fascination by the Hanafis. Uh, and I realized in the last year of my writing that at Al-Azhar education system in Egypt, that all every single book that we studied um, as a formative book for these students who were 13, 14 years old, was written by a Hanafi scholar who lived uh, post-1500. Every single work. And that observation was kind of interesting. So why is this the case? If Hanafis has always been uh, and continues to develop uh, a legal tradition, why we only studied that later period, not earlier ones? Uh, anyway, so, uh, so these questions of continuity and change, what it means to have an authority-bound tradition, what it means how the later Hanafis build on the, the, the scholarship of the earlier scholars, and so on and so forth. So there's something in there that I felt that needs to be teased out and to be studied. And the last thing I will say is that in Egypt, unfortunately, most of the conversations and the histories that we learn about the Ottomans are very negative. Uh, and they're very uh, kind of colored both by the uh, Muslim modernists and reformists who saw the Ottomans at the beginning of the era of decline, as well as by nationalists who saw the Ottomans to be an occupiers, for example. Neither of these visions has all, uh, uh, kind of had any relevance, li- really, to how Islamic history in Egypt under Ottoman rule uh, developed with all of its issues and problems for sure. So these ideological, unfortunately, cages in which we are grew up uh, with uh, only became apparent to me when I be, uh, be older uh, and studied things much more deeply. I get to understand this is really something going on in terms of 
that late Druistic tradition, usually trashed by the reformists, usually dismissed by the naturalists, and usually uh, it's un- uh, and usually uh, can I would say because it's massive, it's huge, get to be overlooked. I wanted to give a voice for late Hanafis. I wanted to understand how they refer to themselves, how to engage themselves, how to refer to the school in general, and that's why that was that book. Terrific. Um, yeah, before we get uh, to the to the book itself, you know, it, the kind of intellectual history you provide, um, I think we hear a lot about how uh, the Islamic legal tradition uh, operates as a palimpsest, as an accumulative uh, tradition that is dynamic and yet uh, does rely on authorities from the past. Um, I think this book really shows that in these very interesting ways and in very specific ways, the dynamism, but also the the way in which authority works in the legal tradition uh, quite quite brilliantly. So I, th- I thought maybe we will begin with a broad question. Um, and uh, the title of the book is a useful point of departure, Law, Empire, and the Sultan. So Samir, could you briefly describe, and we'll keep on coming back to this main theme of the book, uh, which is about the relationship between the process of lawmaking and imperial uh, authority, political authority. But could you maybe share with our listeners who may not be familiar with this context uh, a bit about the broader sort of argument and your intervention in the study of uh, Islamic law and how these two categories of imperial authority and Islamic law uh, interact in your in this project? Uh, wonderful question. So, um, so I claim to make two specific uh, interventions. Number one, I claim that Islamic law cannot be imagined outside of the political institutions that historically maintained it. Islam has always been, Islamic law specifically, has always been maintained, applied, and enforced in imperial contexts. When Muslim empires or dynasties across the universe, whether the Mughals in India, whether the Ottomans, uh, or whether the Salafids, uh, Islamic law has always been part of the apparatus by which these dynasties and, um, and these empires were able to govern and, uh, and enforce the law. Uh, the second issue uh, that I want to intervene in the field is to um, provide um, specific um, history to the so-called late Hanafis that I claim this is a later synthesis of the Hanafi school, specifically under the Ottomans, where we see the Ottoman state uh, edicts and orders is incorporated in the authoritative works of the Hanafi jurists from 15th century till the 19th century. That, uh, so I don't call it really intervention. My claim is that, uh, that I'm reading Hanafi texts that has been, uh, again, has been um, uh, given from generation to, to generation. So this is the authoritative works by which the students in schools get to study and learn carefully. Um, and this is the ones uh, that really keep the tradition uh, going. So here I'm, I'm claiming that yes, the Ottoman sultans uh, claimed a kind of new, kind of uh, a new uh, way of governing um, that the Hanafis had to adjust to, but also had to make arguments why they should um, incorporate um, Ottoman sultanic edicts in their authoritative legal manuals, legal commentaries, as well as fatwa literature. So here the issue is not about that the, the state. Uh, uh, that the, the Ottoman Sultanate, specifically as I use in the book, uh, that the Sultanic authority became part and parcel by which Hanafis imagine their role in this uh, very, again, this is an, 
a massive empire, requires sophisticated forms of governance. The, the Hanafis cannot by themselves basically try to provide norms for this massive emerging apparatus uh, 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 of governing. So, so they understood the Ottomans to be, to be uh, uh, indispensable uh, uh, in the ways in which they perceived how Islamic law could apply to people's uh, lives and hopefully generate uh, normative claims um, that would allow them to have some relevance to how people kind of practice Islam. So number one, and kind of finally, um, um, the, um, uh, so the Hanafis, although they made justifications and they were um, conscious that the Ottomans sometimes uh, did engage in some uh, unjust policies uh, that were in clear violations of Islamic legal norms, the Hanafis really did not uh, hold back some of these uh, uh, criticisms uh, for the Ottomans. So uh, issues of endowments, issues of the appointments of the sultans, uh, judges in the provinces, uh, issues of how they treated uh, peasants, these things had clearly been criticized um, and have been pushed back. So the relationship is not that meta-historical uh, reality that has always existed when the jurists are competing with Muslim rulers over power and authority. It seems that that narrative, I think, um, maybe in the abstract level can be maintained, but once you come to actual historical realities about how these two groups that I think wanted something that society function uh, or a Muslim community have some sort of uh, viability, uh, they agree that some negotiation is possible and I think has always been possible. Um, and the Ottoman is just an example in that regard. So uh, here also an example that we need to understand that the that Muslim jurists were not all the time competing to have political power, but they so and they maintained their role um, and their authority in society. Uh, I think this is uh, something that I think I think the Ottomans understood, and and they respected, um, and there was kind of uh, ebb and flow. So there was negotiative effort. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. But at the end of the day, that was how things uh, were uh, uh, kind of uh, were arranged. One of one of the the really uh, brilliant things about this book is that yeah, you know each of the chapters shows ways in which, as I was saying earlier, um, how these early modern Hanafi jurists uh, maintained their fidelity to the to the longer tradition uh, from the early Hanafi uh, authorities, uh, but also reoriented and 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 added sort of new things uh, to it and you really show in very convincing detail how that happens and that is something I found really really helpful um, let's jump right into the the individual chapters and the first chapter is focused on this really fascinating uh, figure Ibn Nujaim that I'll have you introduce uh, to our listeners a bit uh, and his uh, shadow uh, keeps on uh, returning uh, in this book throughout the other chapters as well um, could you speak a bit um, about who is Ibn Nujaim and then uh, maybe provide one example to our to our listeners, the example that I found particularly fascinating, if you, that's the one you want to focus on, but it's up to you which one you want to focus on, is, is the consideration of custom on the whole question of uh, uh, Jews and Christians converting into Islam and, and what counts as an authentic conversion and how he sort of uh, rethinks that, that question from early Hanafi opinions. Um, uh, but yeah, perhaps, perhaps uh, who is Ibn Nujaim and one example of how he reorients the tradition while maintaining his fidelity to the earlier tradition. Wonderful. Um, thank you. Uh, so 
Ibn Nujaim is a very important uh, jurist, uh, 15th century, um, uh, kind of first, Egypt, kind of first generation uh, Ottoman Egyptian Hanafis. Um, he witnessed both the Mamluks and the Ottomans. Uh, he wrote a famous commentary on Sharh al Kanz al Daqaiq. It's called the Bahr al Raiq. Uh, and that commentary is one of the most important and the most authoritative texts that everybody who came after him and generations of Hanafis continue to study that work. Um, I, would, I would say till today, some people still find Ibn Jaim extremely relevant and that's a very important figure. But beyond his legal acumen and his discipline and his uh, qualifications, Ibn Jaim um, is really a key figure in the how the Hanafis imagined their own history. So one of the difficulties sometimes when I really teach Islamic law, for example, and this is the irony uh, that I find why teaching Islamic law in legal uh, in, um, in, in schools of law, what I teach in Texas, versus teaching Islamic law in liberal arts, is that in the context of a legal school, I don't have to lecture much about authority. Everybody in the classroom understand legal phenomena has a particular type kind of, kind of inherent qualities that a jurist is not a jurist because he's just purely his intelligent person, but rather he's working within a tradition. He, he is uh, articulating that tradition. He attempts to regenerate, uh, reintroduce, affirm, uh, restate some of the positions of that tradition, but uh, the questions, the new questions that arise obviously would generate different types of norms and ideas that can be contested, not necessarily be accepted. But again, these backgrounds in the context of the law school are taken for granted. It's easier to teach Islamic law in legal schools, um, in law schools, because they understand the concept of authority in front of a judge. You're not there just to present your own ideas. Or you're a jurist, not because you're just uh, somehow intelligent person. You're a jurist because you are uh, a part of a legal tradition. You are authoritative because you tie yourself to an authority higher than, than you. Uh, and, and the structure for, for this authority, the history, this texts, and, and there's a tradition. When you teach Islamic law in liberal arts, uh, I would say this, it just it seems like Islamic is everything. Everybody can say, say anything. It's perfectly acceptable. Uh, and I'm not sure <laughs> if this is helpful um, um, pedagogically and if, or even accurate about how Muslims actually go about these issues. Um, in the modern contemporary uh, situations, of course, Muslims can do whatever they want. But the issue when it comes to Islamic law as, as an actual field of study, uh, an actual expertise, no one will take you seriously if you just state what you think things are, because this is not how the legal tradition functions. In front of a judge, by a jurist, in, in front of a mufti, this something is called tradition, something is called authority, and this is really key of how Ibn Rujayim continues to be authoritative until the very late 19th century, in which that uh, most of the things that he wrote in legal maxims pops up in the first 100 articles of the Ottoman civil law or the Majella, for example. So, so the idea of authority, the idea of a legal school, the idea of a madhab is germane of how Islamic law survived. And that tells you, once the madhab goes out of the window in the late 19th century by Muslim modernists and those who really did not sow that mode of uh, legal uh, tradition is generative for the new emerging realities, they discover, oh, Islamic law is gone out of the window and the state takes over it. 
So, uh, so madhab is very important. And why Ibn Nujayim, uh, as I insist in the book, is a very important figure and a puzzle in that long history of the school, especially in, in, in its late synthesis. Second, Ibn Nujayim lived in Egypt. So, hmm. So here we have two issues here, issues of custom. So Hanafis in, uh, so this is a big empire. Hanafis in Syria, Hanafis in Anatolia, Hanafis in Jerusalem, uh, uh, in Quds, uh, have different issues and it seems they have different answers to them because these also traditions had local answers. Hanafis did not really want to provide universal monocultural kind of, um, kind of positions, but rather they also understood and clearly internalized that there's certain issues that is bound by certain customary practices and that must be respected and must be taken for, uh, seriously and in terms of their own legal argumentation and thinking. One way to think about why custom, but again here custom is a, is a very specific legal concept. Custom is not just what people do because custom, some custom practices uh, or Islam did denounce and Islam wanted to change. But here is about some kind of, perv- kind of pervasive uh, social practices that deeply can embedded in society that everyone does, and it doesn't seem to violate key norms in Islam or, or key uh, of its precepts. And, and, and it seems uh, uh, most Hanafi school had no problem with these customary practices, especially in the area of transactions. Okay, the example that you uh, that you alluded to in the context of. Um, Conversion to Islam, I think this is a kind of almost an exception. But again, but even then, custom was also very important in their in their own argumentation in this. So the example that you uh, that you mentioned is was a debate among specifically Egyptian Hanafis here, where uh, some Coptic Egyptians who converted to Islam, they just go to the to the Muslim judge and they just declare the shahada that saying Ashhadu la ilaha illallah, Ashhadu Muhammad Rasulullah. And for Egyptian Hanafis, it seems that, at least to Ibn Nujayim, there was sufficient indication that somebody converted to Islam without necessarily have to denounce uh, their earlier tradition. And uh, that seems to contradict some of the earlier position in the school. So here again, so here the Mutakhirun introduced, number one, serious change. That change has to do with actual realities that we see in Egypt. But number three, it seems that uh, that the position in the early school is based on the Iraqi custom, in which that that some Iraqi Jews and some Iraqi Christian uh, seems to be uh, kind of to have believed that yes, Muhammad is a great prophet, but he comes for the Arabs, not for uh, not for the um, uh, not for other um, um, traditions, um, and that caused some confusion. Oh, so okay, uh, if somebody believes that Muhammad is a prophet, but not to them, to the Arabs, is a sufficient indication this guy's a Muslim or not. So I think the question about community boundaries, the question about oh, uh, theological commitments, how we know them, uh, especially as... Uh, so it's sufficient for a person, for example, to show up for a, um, for a congregation of prayer to be considered a Muslim. The answer is yes. So uh, what about somebody shows up for Hajj? Uh, that's for Hanafis said, yes, this is actually sufficient for them to be considered Muslim. What about fasting Ramadan? Said, no, we have no idea this person is fasting or not. Okay, so some, so at least the, the Hanafis insisted that, that there's some community uh, 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 kind of verifiable dimension of once a person believes that has to be considered when they come to uh, claim to be converted from kind of another tradition or not. 
Okay, so that's, so this is the background. Hanafis in Egypt said, look, that all conversation is based on the Iraqi context. Egyptian Copts do not believe was Muhammad is a prophet at all. If somebody says that Muhammad is a prophet, that's a clear indication this is the case. And as you can see from my book, that some Hanafis did not like this idea. They said, oh, this is a terrible idea. But this Hanafis coming from where? This Hanafis who did not like that position by somebody like Ibn Rajayim, uh, like, uh, what's his name? Noah um, Fendi Al-Qunawi. Uh, again, he came from Anatolia. And I think, as you may notice, that uh, maybe this is the case also in India, uh, that uh, I think you might know more about this uh, than me. But Hanafis, who lived more on the peripheries and on the borderlands, has much more, I think, stricter position what comes to non-Muslims and issues of community boundaries than Muslims who live in the central lands. And we'll find this in plenty of issues, like, for example, Hanafi's position in Shia, it seems pretty uh, uh, kind of in the middle. Uh, but if you look at the Hanafi's fatwas from Anatolia against, against Shia Ismail and the Shia, very, very aggressive stuff. So, so that these dynamics has to be really carefully reconfigured. Why Hanafis in Egypt say something, Hanafis in the periphery say something else, and why Hanafis in Jerusalem, for example, had no problem dealing with this waqf uh, al cash endowments that might be might have perceived that they have some sort of riba. Hanafis in Egypt says, "Oh, what what is that? This seems to be different." But people says, "Well, this, these guys." Uh, that came to Jerusalem and have no problem with cash endowments. These were immigrants coming from the Ottoman Empire. Most of them came from Central Asia, and they're familiar with this type of transactions. So this is really uh, so. This is a very rich social scene that you have to be very carefully able to delineate and understand uh, how the legal tradition tried to address some of them, uh, some, sometimes insufficiently, sometimes appropriately, and sometimes effectively. I think this is some of the uh, the underpinning issues that just comes in the um, in these texts uh, that I was able to read for the book. You know, one of the major arguments of the book, uh, which we see throughout uh, the, the text, is that you are questioning a tendency in the study of Islamic law uh, that posits this kind of a neat separation between the domains of uh, political authority and the domains of lawmaking and, and jurisprudence. Um, and you're contesting the claim that this is some kind of a, um, a, a modern phenomenon, that it's just a modern state that incorporates law and, and, and uh, you know, the domain of juristic authority uh, into its uh, domain um, with modernization reforms, etc. So you, you're trying to show ways in which uh, uh, imperial authority and, you know, um, uh, sultanic orders and imperial edicts were actually made part of uh, the legal texts and the tradition. And that's basically, uh, in some ways, is a major uh, theme of the book, which really comes uh, shining through in the, in the next chapter, uh, chapter two uh, of, um, of this book, The Sultan Says. Um, again, I'm wondering if you could give readers a couple of examples of how this happens, how imperial edicts or how sultanic authority really uh, would be the more accurate way to put it, becomes a part of uh, late Hanafi jurisprudence and becomes a part of, uh, uh, or, or, or is given what you keep on calling throughout the book, a certain probative value, uh, a sort of a, a, a legal value, um, and becomes a substantive part of the lawmaking process. Um, so I was wondering if you could, if you want to speak a bit about that larger argument, um, and if you could give an example uh, from this book, uh, perhaps, again, I, I, you know, I particularly found fascinating in this chapter, the discussion of Aladdin al-Haskafi died 1677, but 
please choose your own example uh, to, uh, to make this point that you do so brilliantly in chapter two. Uh, thank you. So in chapter two, um, the um, so a move from the Nujay, uh, he's still uh, kind of early Ottoman Egyptian Hanafi to the 17th century. Um, and you can see here, I think uh, I cover about four or five jurists and I try to show in their uh, most important writings. And these writings is not any writing. So, so this is not obscure. This is the, everyone knows anything about the Hanafi 17th century in the, in the, in the 17th century, knows it's Murtashi, knows Al-Haskafi, um, and the others uh, um, in, the, um, in the chapter. Um, so the argument is that, um, that we can see not just simply that the Ottoman Sultanic authority has been consistently incorporated. Again, so the number of cases is not high. But the idea there that that it, it does exist, okay? So it's there, and um, so number one. Can number two is that you will find that that these jurists have much more visible, um, much more frequent references to the sultan throughout their writings. So, so if you compare, uh, this is not actually in the book. Uh, that, so, uh, so that material did not make it in the book. But they made some, uh, some, some data set to compare, for example, the text that was written in the Mamluk times versus a Hanafi text that was written in the 17th century uh, Ottoman context. And I just compared the references to the Imam, the references to, to the Sultan, the references to the Wali al-Amr. And you can see serious <laughs> expansion of the references, just direct references, the Sultan in the book of Salah, the Sultan in the book of uh, Hajj, the Sultan in the book of uh, the book of endowments, much more visible, even beyond uh, the idea that this guy is citing direct edicts uh, from the Sultanic um, orders. It's number one. The second issue that, that I wanted to brought to attention to uh, in the field is that we really need to read these things carefully. Okay, again, uh, part of the uh, I claim that there is much more attention in the field to usul al-fiqh, to legal theory, rather than fiqh. And uh, I would claim one of the reasons, part of the reason, not the whole thing, is that fiqh books are just daunting. It's huge. Uh, uh, somebody wrote, a, uh, uh, one of his works is a 16-volume kind of works. What is that? Okay, That would require a lot of time to sit down and just read through this. And require serious familiarity with how these jargon function. Right uh, or uh, how they refer to things, what exactly is gone. So again, that required a lot of time to just sit down and try to do these data sets and then see how Hanafis do. But the point again is that fiqh is extremely important. As I referred in my introduction, that uh, ignoring fiqh and ignoring these texts uh, would not again help us to to have helpful insights or generate any type of good conversations about the contemporary situation that Muslims find themselves in, or the future of Islamic law in general. So back to the authors that I have in the um, in that second chapter. So I refer to somebody like Ishram Bulali, Al-Haskafi, and somebody from Anatolia, uh, Sheikh Zada, and uh, and, Ahmad, uh, uh, um, and and Al-Amadi. Uh, he was in Syria, but also has connections to Anatolia as well. Uh, I, I will... 
I was fascinated by somebody like Shumbulali, for example. And I can mention some reasons. Shumbulali, who somebody, uh, again, he's a he's the most authoritative Hanafi uh, jurist in Egypt in the 17th century, wrote plenty of texts, especially his legal manuals. If you are a Hanafi student beginner today, in India, Egypt, in Syria, or Palestine, or Palestine, you will have to study the first text by Shumbulali. He, he is the guy. Uh, this is how important this guy is. Again, extremely intelligent, very, very impressive legal scholar, specifically Shumbulali. He never held any official positions in the Ottoman bureaucracy. He, away in the province in Egypt, and yet, He's writing these treatises, supporting Ottoman policies and defending the Ottoman Sultan's authority uh, and mandate to, for all sorts of things. Um, but in the, uh, in the chapter, uh, I show that Ishrambulari in Egypt uh, was not appointed by the Ottoman Sultan, has no official positions to them. He was, uh, he was the Sheikh al-Hanafiyya in Azhar, but nothing beyond that. Um, and yet somebody like him uh, affirm the Ottoman Sultanic authority in his own legal works. Um, so uh, that's, for me, is not surprising. But for others in the field, oh, why somebody who's not appointed the Ottoman Sultan do something like that? I would say is that, that the Hanifi tradition as a whole, not just individual jurists, uh, understood and maintained that the Hanafi, that, that the late Hanafi synthesis is that Ottoman Sultanic authority is important and key and part and parcel of their own articulation of the school's doctrinal commitments, especially when it comes to policy considerations. That's a position that seems permeates most of the Hanafis, whether those guys were coming from Anatolia, they were appointed by the Ottoman Sultan as muftis or as judges. Uh, or uh, other kind of uh, or other capacities, or Hanafis who are not part of this um, uh, bureaucratic apparatus, that also was very authoritative Hanafis, are very important, and only worked in education centers away, very away from the Ottoman sultans. So that's for me is very key and very important to how this book, I hope, try to reorient the field in that direction. But again, we, you will never understand these things from reading Usul al-Fiqh at that time or reading any type of texts. Actually, uh, uh, most of the things that I relied upon for al or al-Haskafi is their own legal treatises, al-Rasail al-Fiqhiyya. I gave a talk uh, re recently to show that it's a mistake to focus on the Hawashi, the legal commentaries, especially in the 18, 18 19th, 20th century, to understand Islamic law. There's a massive expansion of the genre of legal treatises in that later period in which every single authoritative Hanafi jurist did author a bunch of legal treatises, huge numbers, with, with, with fascinating argumentations, legal, uh, again, uh, uh, updated norms, and so on and so forth. So if you study Hawashi, say Hawashi is bad, um, uh, and, 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 and so Islamic law is in decline, for example, uh, this is a very misguided effort that I think must be uh, um, a challenge and, and also must be, um, I think a new narrative must be uh, rearticulated in light of these type of things that have been uh, discussed in, um, in these time periods. Anyway, so, uh, so in brief, 
Shumbulali or Haskafi in Syria or somebody in Anatolia. It seems that all what gathers all of them together are being late Hanafis. They understood the Ottomans in a particular way. And it seems that Ottoman Sultanic Authority made it to their own legal articulations of the school. I, I next want to turn to um, another great example that you that you uh, meticulously detail in the book, uh, that of, of course, the, the uh, Ibn Abidin and uh, Radul Muhtar. Um, and in that chapter, you especially detail this central category of custom uh, that becomes a very important uh, uh, vehicle of, uh, uh, again, reorienting some of these discussions in the late Hanafi tradition while maintaining one's fidelity to Abu Hanifa and the early Hanafi uh, jurists. Um, so I was wondering if you could uh, briefly introduce Ibn Abidin and perhaps talk about him and how he is part of your narrative, maybe with an example or two. And the other thing, I, one thing we haven't talked about, which you just indicated just now, in fact, which I think is another real strength of this book and an important argument, in that it's not just new positions or new ways in which um, um, uh, 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 some of these questions are being discussed uh, or ways in which... Uh, Sultanic authority is being incorporated into the structure of law, but you also talk about ways in which uh, the, the the genre of texts and how they are looked at and 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 uh, prioritized, how that also goes through a very important shift in the late Hanafi tradition in terms of uh, looking at you know shuruh and fatawa and mutun etc. Um, I was wondering if you could touch on that part of your of your argument as well of how the very genre of texts and their their privileging and prioritization, how that goes through an interesting shift as well in this period. I think Ibn Abidin is a good example for that as well. A wonderful question. So um, Ibn Abidin is a Damascene Hanafi jurist, uh, died uh, in the late uh, 19th century. Uh, he comes from a very humble beginning. His father was a watchmaker. Um, he had a very solid training with one of the most important uh, Hanafis in Damascus. Um, he also served as the Mufti um, in his time period in, in Syria. Um, um, what else? Um, so it, he is really known for his encyclopedic uh, work. Uh, this is the Hashia of Ibn Abidin, uh, commonly known, Rad al Muhtar al Dur al Muhtar. Andur Mukhtar is a famous text manual by, um, uh, by Tim Murtashi that I'll also uh, cover in my book. Um, so he's building on earlier late Hanafis as well. Um, but Ibn Abidin had, uh, I think, a set of sources and a massive uh, library that he was able to pull from and uh, was able to have this encyclopedic, really, uh, hashia. Uh, that no one before him was able to articulate in the manner that he did. Uh, so kind of, kind of is number one. Um, il, also, he, uh, so he also had uh, a fatawa texts. He also has a rasail, his own. So really, he's, uh, he has, uh, I think, spent his life in, uh, in that bath of knowledge. Um, in my work... I wanted to show that Ibn Abidin is a continuation of previous generations of Hanafis who uh, perceived uh, the school's history in a particular fashion and who engaged the Ottomans in a very similar ways by incorporating the positions, 
um, and by alluding directly to Ottoman Sultanate edicts with specific dates and so on and so forth. So, as, so that seemed that the, uh, that, that position continued and he never argued against it. Rather, he actually used it and I think much, can, can make it even much more normative, uh, if you will. Um, the, the other thing that I wanted to do in the chapter of Ibn Abidin is I wanted to engage some of the, some of the narratives in the field in which Ibn Abidin is, is, is kind of presented, uh, I think I would say in a, uh, in a uh, kind of uh, uh, inaccurate fashion uh, in light of his own work. For example, somebody, uh, because of Ibn Abidin's work on custom, for example, so Ibn Abidin comes late and he found custom to be extremely important. Again, society is changing very fast. And Ibn Abidin thinks changing around him pretty quickly. The Ottomans is in decline. The Ottomans authority shaking. In, well, in Egypt has been a, uh, has been uh, has been serious trouble since 1882. Um, uh, but even before then, can he saw that the, 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 this Khadif's coming would became almost independent by uh, by 1875, and, and so on and so forth. So things are changing rapidly around him. Custom became very important tool for jurists. And, and he makes use of it, and he makes serious argument. He also wrote a famous treatise. Uh, it's called Nashr al-Araf in which he makes argument that Hanafi, especially Hanafis, will have to generate norms based on custom. That custom is new. Okay, So for him, custom change. So the custom for the Prophet and the companions uh, are not necessarily going to be the custom that somehow should continue forever. He makes argument that these customary practices will change because Muslims and their societies will change. Anyway, so um, some people, uh, again, some treatments of Ibn Abidin in the field either talk him that, oh, Ibn Abidin really is the one who somehow secularized Islamic law because he makes argument that Arf is very important. And they try to show that Ibn Abidin takes the entire pieces, the entire sections on Arf in his Hashia, as well as in his treatise, word for word from Ibn Rujayim, for example. But somehow this is was missed. So why not Ibn Rujayim then is not secularizing Islamic law in the 15th century? He's not. The idea that Jews is just basically how to make use of the tools available for them in, in their own tradition. So it doesn't make any doesn't make it any different that somehow Ibn Ibn Abidin want to use it. Uh, second, or the, or somehow Ibn Abidin is basically his reason why this Ottoman reform started. So again, these treatments is very superficial. They does not go deep to really read Ibn Abidin uh, as he deserves uh, from us. Again, it's extremely, uh, the, every single figure you read in that book uh, 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 humbles you immensely with their knowledge, with their legal acumen, with their discipline, and their students that they left behind. So, um, so this is not. Uh, so these guys are not simple-minded, or somehow um, these things can be taken lightly. Um, the one thing I will, I will, I will take about Ibn Abidin, uh, there is a book has been published, uh, actually in two volumes, uh, that lists the entire uh, library that Ibn Abidin has. So you have two volumes, each one about maybe three or four hundred pages. Um, and that was his, his own library in the late 19th century, writing these uh, hashia. So hawashi um, are very important texts. Unfortunately, there's a famous uh, kind of uh, um, uh, uh, derogatory 
phrase, I think, uh, used usually for those who read Hawanshi. He says, uh, I think it says something um, along the lines, man al hawashi something, something, uh, there's no, no, anything, something like that. Okay. And the fuqaha uh, responded, says, well, those who do not read Hawashi will not really know anything. So Hawashi <laughs> are, uh, are just learning, uh, what do you call it, teaching texts, are, are convoluted, are difficult, are they meant to be so? These are not general public uh, texts. Uh, and again, if you read a civil procedure in American law, in any American law school, I guarantee they're not understanding anything from anything you read. It is meant to be like that. This is how legal jargon is built. This is, this is specialized knowledge. So for me, for example, part of my frustration sometimes, especially speaking about the book, is that um, it's unclear to me what is required from the mutakhiri. Okay. Sometimes, well, Hawashi is bad. Okay. What, uh, well, the early text is better. As I mentioned in my latest uh, talk, in Egypt, for example, uh, Muslim reformers say, well, early classical texts are better. They are much more sophisticated and so on and so forth. Okay, sure. And in some limited fashion, they actually use these early texts in the schools. And then they discovered, oh, these old books, now old books, uh, these old books had or have any social utility for Egyptians in the 19th century. Obviously, they do. <laughs> the late Hanafis have something of relevance. They discuss, for example, hunting using rifles. There's a famous treatise about that. They discuss policies with regard to uh, limiting capital punishment. You'll, not, you'll, you'll never find that in early texts. You'll find that in the legal treatises in the, in the late texts, for example. So my point is, there is, I think, this deliberate, or, or maybe not, or maybe um, unwitting <laughs> uh, uh, impulses that somehow the later tradition is bad because people are just derivative. But I will tell you this. This is a legal tradition. It is based, is, it is authority bound. You're not there just because you're smart. You are part of a tradition. Introducing a legal change in a very long history of a multi-layered legal tradition is hard. I'm saying that. A later Hanafi is, and by nature, <laughs> would be really hard for them to change a position unless he's able to provide a very strong, convincing internal legal argument within the madhab. But that would require as well external uh, social and political help. For these efforts to succeed. So nothing, and this is obviously how we get change happen today, for example, in our societies, okay? Uh, you have our society first, seems to be open to the idea, or the idea has been advocated for, and then law comes later to affirm or state or, um, some of these norms in society. Islamic law is no different. Um, but anyway, so, so this is uh, some of the issues that I wanted to bring up uh, with Ibn uh, Abidin. Finally, in terms of the texts, I think you're correct. There is a certain type of obsession with the Hawashi uh, because the, uh, this is what the, the Muslim modernists really attacked and attacked without uh, mercilessly uh, to, uh, to be uh, excluded from curricula and so on and so forth. And, and I claim that this is not really helpful. The Hawashi is only one of the genres. It is not the only genre. The Rasa'il, I think, is extremely important, expanded immensely under the Ottomans. Uh, and most of them unpublished, unknown, until today. Only few of these actually have been published. Um, so, um, so I'm going to stop there. Hopefully, can engage you in some other questions. Sure, I should mention before we get to the other uh, 
question in the last chapter of this book that, you know, the book has these very neat and helpful um, uh, charts and uh, uh, bar charts showing, for example, uh, or, you know, the extent to which uh, Sabin and Ojaim is cited in a later text in different chapters of uh, of a of a um, of, of a later text, uh, etc. So it really there is some interesting empirical work that you've also done uh, through this very uh, useful and helpful uh, charts and figures and tables, etc. Throughout the book, and the other uh, the other point that I think we may not have had a chance to get to, and I thought that was a very crucial point you made. I think it was the Ibn Abidin chapter, maybe uh, some other chapter, that you know just because some of these jurists were uh, giving a probative value to sultanic authority does not mean that they were not critical of the sultans themselves or of their corruption or their bureaucracy, etc. So one could be critical of imperial power and sovereignty while also according it an important place in substantive legal uh, uh, discourse and, and reasonings. I thought that was a very nuanced and important point to make that it's not either or, it's not incorporation or exclusion, but rather the two. Uh, 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 critique, critique, and incorporation can work together. Is something that you show uh, rather brilliantly. Um, uh, I want to turn to the the last chapter on the majalla uh, or uh, uh, majalla uh, or the uh, the codification of um, uh, 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 Islamic law um, in the in the in the Ottoman Empire. And there, you of course critique this uh, widely held view that this signals some kind of uh, modernization of of law. And you show that, in fact, no, this has a longer tradition within within Hanafi, uh, especially within the late Hanafi tradition, and that becomes the bedrock, or that becomes the the conceptual underpinning on which uh, uh, this codification process proceeds. Um, so this is not uh, just a modernization drive, and there you especially show the importance of al qawaid al fiqhia or the legal maxims, especially as expounded by Ibn Nujaim, how that became a central resource for the majalla. Uh, for this process of codification. So I'll have you speak a bit about that argument. Why uh, do you think this is uh, it's limiting and inaccurate to think about this just as a form of modernization and how Al-Qawaid al-Fiqhiyya became an important part of the Majalla? Uh, wonderful. So um, so the Majalla chapter, um, so I got some pushbacks, and uh, especially after I published it um, as a separate article early on after I finished my uh, my dissertation. And then after it came out in my book, and my claim in the Majalla, um, I hope uh, it is uh, nuanced as understand it. So the Majalla is, uh, and as it was articulated in the Ottoman circles and all the works that, that, that exist in, Ottoman, in, in Turkish or in English versions, the Majalla was an Ottoman uh, state project supervised by the Ottoman state. And with the involvement of some jurists, Sheikh al-Islams or some Hanafis uh, in Syria, Egypt uh, by the time was almost semi-independent, so they were not included in that. Although Egyptians were very attentive to what the Majalla is and what they're doing, and they always found it to be fascinating and a source of inspiration for any project that came uh, um, in the Egyptian context uh, in terms of codification. Uh, so in the Majalla, I only wanted to correct a couple of things. Number one. The Majalla is not haphazard set of norms that somehow were selected randomly from the Hanafi school. This is a very serious effort. took more than 10 years with one of the most intelligent, with the most important authorities in the Hanafi school 
to gather and write these uh, uh, these um, this set of uh, um, of norms and this set of uh, um, articles um, over that time period. Lots of debates and arguments and disputes. Some people were resigned. Some people left uh, the the committee. But at the end of the day, that effort continued under Ahmadinejad Pasha. The Majalla, as a claim, is uh, influenced and, of course, is a response to European modernization uh, uh, efforts that led by securizing elite in the empire, for sure. There's no question about that. And I'm not denying that this is the fact. All I'm saying is that that, Ahmed, that, that, that the drafters of the Majalla, at least how they saw it, uh, they conceived it as somehow an Islamically informed response to the penetration of European laws into the heart of the empire. And they wanted to apply it uh, in this new emerging courts, uh, that is the Nizamiya courts. Uh, and this is, uh, again, kind of secular courts that were created parallel to Sharia courts to um, have much more uh, positive law uh, um, in terms of its uh, guiding uh, laws, but also to address some of the concerns uh, about the Somehow Islamic courts uh, does not allow the testimony of Christians and so on and so forth. So, so here I show that the Majella was a very effective response. It continued and maintained in most of the Ottoman provinces. Um, ironically, still till today, if you'd like to be a Muslim judge in Jordan or a Muslim judge in Palestine or even a Muslim judge inside um, uh, Israel uh, for the Muslim community, for example, in which the Ottoman system is still actually in place, you will find uh, everybody has to be, each judge must be tested in the Majella till today. It's funny, uh, but also tells you how this enduring project really shaped uh, Muslim, um, um, uh, Muslim uh, uh, education. So um, um, so here, the, can I, this is some of the issues I wanted to respond to. It's obvious, so... I'm not so. I'm not saying that the Majella is a fiqh book because some people saw me say, "Oh, the Majella is just a fiqh book, and that's why there's no change." Uh, I, this is not what I claim. This is, I hope, uh, if, if this is understood, uh, kind of to be clearly, kind of correct myself that the Majella is understood is a codification. Codification is perceived to be universal and exists in Islam, and the legal maxims were perceived to be. This is really the early form where some of these codes existed. It's a kind of terse, uh, short, uh, normative statement on behalf of the um, of the school, for example, um, of the Hanafi school, for example, which Ibn Ujaim is, of course, is the master jurist, is the first one in the Hanafi school to write anything of that subject. And of course, the first 100 comes directly copy and paste from his own work. So the Majella is a very important project. It is complicated, but at the same time gives us insights about how really Muslims grappled with some of these questions. Uh, and how they understood uh, how Islamic law can respond to them. I should also mention here uh, for our listeners that the book ends with uh, these really useful and uh, fascinating appendices, uh, which deal with a, a range of questions. Primarily, they, they, they show ways in which the early Hanafi opinions were reformulated in the late Hanafi tradition, and uh, they do it through these very uh, accessible uh, tables in which you very clearly show precisely ways in which um, uh, these reformulations happen in, for example, Ibn Ujaim's uh, Al-Bahra Raiq uh, or uh, 
الهسكافيز الذره المختار اند سو اون اند سو فورث as we come towards the end of our time uh, samia i was wondering if you want to share a bit with our listeners about uh, um, your current next i mean after such a Uh, mon- monumental book uh, you deserve some rest time but what's the next uh, what's the next sort of uh, project that you're thinking of doing these days so in the fall to uh, 2021 um i will be a fellow at harvard law school uh, to work on my uh, st- my second book project which will focus specifically uh, on egypt from 1800 till 1950 so 150 years and um Um, and I have um, an idea um, which I wanted to test. And I w- so, number one, I, I claim that the institutional history of Islamic law, specifically Islamic courts, is 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 very hard to um, to find. It, it, it just there's no much um, out there to be able to read what really happened to Islamic courts. Most of the remains either uh, about Islamic courts' decisions and some of the kind of uh, an analysis of them. This is very important and rich, or just some of the type of history that we kind of kind of glosses over some of the issues that we don't know anything really about. Who are these Muslim judges that actually were appointed in these uh, famous Islamic courts in Egypt? I was wondering what type of procedures that were included in these courts. especially after the, the, the kind of British came to Egypt. I was wondering, so one of the fascinating issues that in 1800, I discovered that in Egypt, it had uh, about uh, 3,800 and something court, uh, Islamic courts. In 1954, we have 137 courts, Islamic courts, for example. And I wonder what just happened there. There's a massive replacement of these courts, its operations, its personnel. Um, and it's also in the matter, um, so uh, part of the issue why Islamic courts became, unfortunately in Egypt, lost a lot of credibility, especially in the early 20th century, so, so 1930s, 1940s, is that I discovered that at least 40 to 60% of its decision was never enforced, for example. I was shocked. Oh, so they, uh, I wonder why. And then I discovered that a decision that was issued by the Ministry of Justice in Egypt, again, which we have no really history of that institution at all, or how they managed Islamic courts at all. But anyway, anyway but, but beyond that, I discovered that a decision was issued where the enforcers of Islamic court decisions are quote-unquote administrative workers or employees. And I had no idea what that meant. That meant literally that that decision can be applicable or not, kind of depending if they can. It, it just seems to be... There is a very peculiar set of procedural rules that made Islamic courts actually irrelevant in terms of how they see cases, in terms of their own jurisdiction, in terms of how they litigate th- uh, cases in front of them, what type of evidence in front of the court. These minute, technical, boring details have serious, substantial um, impact on the future of Islamic courts and and uh, the inevitable um, kind of punishment of this course for example 1950s it's it's a sad story <laughs> but, but it's very important to understand why <laughs> why that happened and how it happened and also hopefully try to address some of the issues about uh, kind of larger questions in the field about modernization secularization and so on and so forth 
Law, Empire and the Sultan, Ottoman Imperial Authority and Late Hanafi Jurisprudence by Samia Ayyub, uh, published by Oxford University Press 2020. Uh, thank you so much, Sami, for your time, uh, for uh, coming on the New Books Network uh, to discuss uh, this uh, phenomenal uh, new book, um, uh, which I'm looking forward to, the kinds of conversations it generates, and, uh, um, um, and, for, and for writing uh, this really fascinating and important uh, study. Thank you so much, Peter. Thanks so much, Shirali, for the invitation, and thank you for the questions and the generosity. So this was my conversation with Professor Sami Ayub about his wonderful new book, Law, Empire and the Sultan. I hope you enjoyed this episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. And I hope you will also join us next time for another fresh episode of our podcast. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to new books in Islamic studies.